Blog Talk Radio. In my working life, I am ignored. I'm ridiculed and tested to my limit on a daily basis. And yet, I love what I do. I'm a teacher in a pupil referral unit for young people who have been permanently excluded from mainstream schools. For 25 years, I've worked with all kinds of different young people, most of whom have challenging behaviour. And I'm here today to be a voice for them, because their real needs lying beneath the behaviour all too often go unseen, unheard, and unmet. Now, these children are easy to dislike. They challenge our authority as adults. They disobey us and disrespect us. They can make us feel out of control and sometimes scared, like we're failing, incompetent, and powerless. In short, they can make us feel like they feel, and it is unbearable. So in our schools, we prefer them to go away and be someone else's problem. But these are our most vulnerable and disadvantaged young people in our society, and they need our help and expertise the most. And yet we're failing them on a huge scale. Over the last three years in schools in England, we've seen a 40% increase in permanent exclusions. 40%. And in 2016, there were over 6,500 permanent exclusions. And the estimated cost of this over the lifetime of that one group is estimated to be over £2 billion. What we know about excluded children is that they're more likely to live in poverty, more likely to experience abuse and neglect at home. They're seven times as likely to have a learning difficulty special educational need, and over half of them are experiencing some form of mental health-related condition. Ultimately, excluded children go on to make up over 60% of our British prison population, and they're not just other people's children. They could be yours, or they could be mine. Like the 15-year-old girl who helped to nurse her mum until she went into a hospice who struggled to cope when her dad moved his girlfriend into the home. And then one day at school, she was walking down the corridor, and another pupil made a really cruel comment about her dying mum. And she lashed out and found herself permanently excluded. Not long after that, she went into care. And I later learned that by the time she was 18, she'd become involved in prostitution. I firmly believe that with the right support, her life could have taken a very different path. Just imagine if she'd been your child. What would you have hoped for her? And what would her mum have wanted? We human beings are wonderfully diverse, but our needs are fundamentally the same. And our need for human connection is the most important. Dr. Brené Brown says, connection is why we're here. It's what gives our lives meaning and purpose. And studies have shown that the happiest people have the most positive human connections. So when connections unravel, so too does our ability to cope with everyday life. And for children with challenging behaviour, they've often become disconnected. 
they've lost their faith in adults and any sense of security that they had. And if they could do well at school, they'd be doing it. But there are barriers standing in the way. There are reasons. And it's never, ever simply that the child doesn't want to. But knowing there are reasons doesn't help our mainstream teachers in their incredibly difficult jobs. Challenging behaviour in our classrooms creates anxiety, causes disruption to learning, and together with workload, it's one of the main reasons teachers give for their own mental health-related absence, and ultimately why some teachers leave the profession altogether. And this is where the ideas and approaches and expertise that staff use in pupil referral units and other alternative provision could be so useful if it was extended and utilised in mainstream schools. What my colleagues and I know is that without a significant relationship, we can't achieve a single thing. These children won't like us and respect us and do as we say, simply because we're adults and teachers. Adults have often let them down, so we have to prove ourselves worthy of their trust. We have to earn it. Now, fortunately for society as a whole, most children follow rules. But it's been shown time and again that children with challenging behaviour follow people first and rules second. Put simply, if they like us, they'll feel safe. And if they feel safe, they'll relax. And if they relax, they're more likely to comply and to learn. I've asked countless pupils, young people, what do you think makes a good teacher? And their responses are typically the same. They say things like, the ones who are strict, but that you can still have a laugh with. Or the ones that seem interested in getting to know you. Or ones that treat you like you're a human being. I asked one young man in my pupil referral unit this question recently. And he said, I've never thought about that before, miss. Just give me a sec. I gave him a sec and I waited. And eventually he said, right. Get on to this myth. I think that teachers, good teachers, are ones that you can have like a, oh, oh, you know, like a proper bond with. Do you know what I mean? I told him I knew exactly what he meant. So is it possible for mainstream teachers to build connections with challenging pupils? I believe this requires a shift in thinking towards a greater sense of collective responsibility for these children. Now, many of us know that our current educational environment does nothing to encourage this. Schools are primarily rewarded on academic results. They're actually incentivized to exclude pupils. Ofsted inspections make no separate judgment about outcomes for children with special needs and those with challenging behavior. And newly qualified teachers often report that they're unprepared for how to teach these children. But there are things that teachers can do in the meantime. The teacher and author, Paul Dix, says, it's the small stuff. It's the daily acts of care. It's the perpetual generosity of spirit and the interest you show in their daily lives that matters most. Small things that can have a huge impact and we shouldn't underestimate the ripple effect that one positive teacher-pupil relationship can have. 
There is nothing more beautiful to me than hearing one pupil that I've spent some time with say quietly to another pupil that's struggling to settle, Nabro, leave it out. This is sound. Collective responsibility is where it starts. But if we want pupils with challenging behaviour to learn how to behave, we have to teach them explicitly and not just expect them to get it. And this is where restorative approaches to behaviour can be so useful. Now, these are not hug-it-out alternatives at the opposite end of the bring-back-the-birch argument. Rather, they are tried and tested approaches designed to reinforce relationships. And they explicitly teach missing skills, like how to reflect on consequences, like how to develop empathy and a conscience. And they instill in pupils the expectation that reparation needs to happen. Detentions, time out, exclusions and isolation do none of this. And we've got plenty of evidence now that shows that our current systems of punishments and sanctions are ineffective with challenging pupils. The head teacher and author, Jarlath O'Brien, says of fixed-term exclusions that they are inaction, masquerading as action. They make us feel like we're doing something when we're doing nothing of the sort. It is respite. It is not improvement. So we need a new way forward if we're going to meet the needs of the most vulnerable and disadvantaged pupils in our society. Because while the world is full of tragic stories that we're helpless to do anything about, we can do something about outcomes for these children. So let's take collective responsibility and let's make connections. Let's share our expertise and integrate the best ideas. We should question and challenge an inspection system and a culture that ignores them. How can that be right? We should never forget that children with challenging behaviour are just children, doing their best to deal with what life has handed to them without any of our adult skills. And if they could tell you what they need, they would probably say something like, don't be scared of me. Please don't give up on me. Make me feel I'm important and give me hope that things can and will get better. Please see past my behaviour. It's not who I really am. So I'm joining with them today in their challenging behaviour to try to get their needs met, albeit in a more socially appropriate way. And I invite you to do the same. The only difference between all of us and the children I speak on behalf of is luck, education and opportunities like this one. Let's make a difference. Thank you. Raising Independent Thinkers. This show is a space for families who are homeschooling or thinking about homeschooling. We'll explore alternative teaching methods, federal and state homeschooling laws, and most importantly, this show is a platform where families can inspire one another on how to raise independent thinkers. I'm your host, Bathsheba Omani, Montessori educator, homeschooling consultant, owner of Homeschool Guide, LLC, and mother of two. 
Let's get started. Good evening, everyone. Um, please, please send me a message if you can hear me. I just wanted to do a quick mic check. Today is October the 18th, 2020, and this is the Raising Independent Thinker Show. Um, you guys can hear me great. Oh, there's an echo. Okay. Let's see if I can fix that. Okay. Um, can everyone hear me? I'm just going to do another mic check. Okay, yes, you can okay, hear yeah. me. Okay, hopefully the echo is gone. Okay, I'll start again. Today is October the 18th, 2020, and this is the Raising Independent Thinker Show. I actually can you hear me? Hear an echo. Okay, that's a little bit better. Speaker off on your computer and talk okay. to your phone. Not, not good. You can't have that on your phone at the same time. Okay. Now there's the echo. Okay, we'll get it together. Okay, is that better? Okay. Great. Okay, hope your week has been going well. Um, again, mine has been busy. Um, I'm I'm helping my son and daughter um, get our remodel, our kitchen remodeled, so that it's accessible for my son, who has cerebral palsy. And it has been a true learning experience, I think, for all of us, because of this whole pandemic epidemic you know, chaos that's going on, certain things have taken longer than normal. So we're having to wait on building supplies and cabinets and furniture and things like that. And it's really not a complaint because when I look at the entire picture, I know things are going to get done and overall I do feel blessed. So it's just another learning experience for me in um, patience. Okay, so this week I thought I'd change topics. I've been talking a lot about um, parent-issued diplomas for homeschoolers over the past few weeks, which is a very interesting topic because many people who don't have the knowledge on homeschooling laws and practices, it's hard for some to believe that they can actually teach their children, let alone issue a diploma, so I'll be definitely coming back to that topic in hopes to bring more awareness on our rights as parents. And I'm sorry, I am just, I'm using a different, um, 
I used a different headset tonight, so I just want to make sure um, I can hear you all when you call in, and you can all hear me. Okay. Okay, someone said I'm good. Okay, good. Okay. So the clip that I played earlier um, is called What Can We Do With Disruptive Children? And um, I actually think the word disruptive sounds so negative, but um, the speaker of this TED Talk, her name is Debbie Breeze, who's an educator and consultant um, who mostly deals with challenging behaviors in children within the school system in England. And I thought it was very interesting. Um, She said one of the reasons teachers leave their professions is because of challenging behaviors and having trouble handling those behaviors. But as we know, as parents, we can't just leave our children when when they're misbehaving. When they're younger, we might find someone to watch them periodically, but eventually we always get them back. And usually the behaviors still need to be addressed and dealt with. So I actually, I have a guest who's a very good friend of mine. Her name is Terry Morgan, and she will be joining us this evening. Um, I'm going to open up her mic. Okay, Terry, are you there? Hi, Beth. Yeah. Hi, Terry. <laughs> How are you? Good. I'm good. Um, I'm so happy that you're joining me. Thank you for doing that. Um so Terry's a longtime educator and mom, and she has lots of experience dealing with um, children with challenging behaviors. So I thought I'd define what that, what a challenging behavior is. And um, I found it on Wikipedia, and it says that the challenging behavior is culturally abnormal behavior frequency, or duration that the physical safety of the person or others is placed in serious jeopardy or behavior which is likely to serious limit or deny access to the use of ordinary community facilities. So basically, if your child is running around and screaming in a restaurant, then that is considered a challenging behavior for most people. That's culturally abnormal. Um, If your child is kicking and hitting you or anyone else, that's considered a challenging behavior. So, Terry, I know you've worked in different independent schools um, for many years, and um, I'm sure challenging behaviors for you is not really challenging because you you know how to deal with them, but... (laughs) What do you consider that most people would say is a challenging behavior? Um, I think when we talk about challenging behaviors, it can mean different things to different people. So over the years working in classrooms um, with different people and also administrators, it really goes back to the person's comfort level. I've had um, – teachers think that crying or pouting was a challenging behavior where Hmm. um, my take on it is if a child is expressing 
um, their dislike or their discomfort in a way that mm-hmm. makes the adults feel uncomfortable, then, of course, it's viewed as being a challenge. But um, misbehavior is a behavior, like all behaviors. Um, I see mm-hmm. misbehavior as a way of communication. You know, the child is trying mm-hmm. to communicate something to the adult, whether it be their dislike and they cannot verbally express what that is at the time or something else is going on and um, they were unable to express that and it's just kind of a continuation of what's been happening. Uh, Maybe something in the home that hasn't been communicated to the adult, Um, especially in the early childhood setting where I have most of my experience. It could be Mm-hmm. Um, the last conversation with the parent, the parent took something away. You know, they didn't finish a special snack, and now they have to come in mm-hmm. to the classroom and join the routine. But if the parent communicated to the teacher that, you know, John or Mary was upset that they didn't finish their snack, could they just finish it quickly, then that would have been resolved. So I just think right. that when children display what the what the adult deems as misbehavior, it's just another way of there's miscommunication between the two, and you have to right. um, know the child, get to know the child, and get to know um, the things that, you know, can set them off or the things that are off-putting to them. And I think the more you get to know that individual child, you could help them through that. Some children really... Um, don't have control over their emotions because they're immature. Mm-hmm. So um, when when you help them out with um, techniques like breathing or taking a moment, mm-hmm. then when they get upset, they can use those techniques to, um, I guess, uh, behave in a way that is socially acceptable. And that's what school is all about, right? right. And that's what adults are here to do for children. Um for very young children, it is age appropriate for like a two year old to stomp and throw themselves down because they're not mature enough um to verbally work things out, so that's a behavior you may see with a two year old and then you can understand that and you kind of help them help them through it but but by giving them a chance to um kind of grow a little more grow out of it. but if you see a six year old doing that then either they haven't learned or the adult hasn't, you know, helped them along by giving them techniques or, um, you know, something else is going on because then that's not a behavior that we would expect from a, you know, a six-year-old. So, again, it looks different for for each development. And I agree with you. Um, It looks different for challenging behaviors looks different from one person to another. And um, I think that there's always a reason for every behavior. And as parents, it's important to try to understand why your child is acting out and why they're behaving this way. And um, I think when we can clearly see all the possible reasons why the child is acting a certain way, then we can support them making better decisions. 
Um, so, yeah, like, for, like you said, for younger children who are still learning and understanding what's right and wrong, um, they're still very self-absorbed, which is normal. Um, and they look up to adults as models. And young children imitate everything they see. So when, when we want to be mindful, um, we want to be mindful of our own behaviors and how we handle certain situations because the child is always watching. Um, even when they're Absolutely. when we think that they're not, yeah. <laughs> so I I want to get your advice on this. I saw a video the other day that I thought was a little disturbing. Um, it was this family with a young child in a department store, and it just popped up on my feed. And they were in a, in the toy section, and this little boy takes a doll baby off the shelf and starts beating it up in the store, just punching it and kicking it. And I would hear the parents in the background who was obvious, obviously they were recording this and just laughing and saying things like, oh, you know, look at him. Where does he get this from? And just giggling and laughing. And it wasn't until the little boy started throwing the baby down and jumping on top of it that they told him to stop. And even when they told him to stop, he kept going. And then the the video ended. <laughs> but my question is, how long should you wait to stop a certain behavior? And, um, you know, some parents may even ask, like, why didn't my child stop when I told them to stop? Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you think? Like, how long do you think you should wait to stop certain behavior that you see a child well, doing? I, um, my take on a child that is in full-blown tantrum is the mm-hmm. worst thing that you can do is give that attention when the child is having a tantrum because it just escalates the situation. So, for example, if a child throws themselves down and they're yelling and sk- kicking and screaming, mm-hmm. by the adult saying stop, 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 it doesn't necessarily stop it. It just adds to what's happening. So in the moment when you see that the child is kind of like calming down or stopping, then you can take little breaks um, and you can say to the child in that moment, I see that you are trying um, to stop mm-hmm. and or you're doing a good job at trying to calm yourself down and kind of give them encouragement and, you know, if it, you can even remind them that if you take a deep breath, that may make you feel better. But after the behavior has subsided, then have a conversation about it. Like, um, you know, when you throw yourself down, you can really hurt yourself. And I can mm-hmm. imagine that if the child did throw them down, they probably did hurt themselves. And, you know, most times children do, and they might, and that child may have felt you know, like they got a sore, had a sore arm or hit themselves somewhere, but you could remind them that, you know, when you do that, you can really hurt yourself and there are things that you can do when you are feeling upset, like take deep breaths, right. uh, have a uh, moment. It's okay to ha- let children have their own moment. Like you can sit here right. and um, be alone um, and if you have a space in your home where you could set something up, and when I say sit alone, it doesn't have to have this kind of negative connotation like 
you're in trouble, so go in the corner, but you can have a corner area in your house where you may want to have one of those those, um, containers that you can turn over where it's like a sand, a timer, where they can watch the, the sand, going down or some kind of peaceful, um, maybe fish tanks. Children love fish tanks, you know, some cozy area that they can like really sit and think about, you know, what just happened or something that they like in that area that brings them, um, makes them feel calm. Um, It doesn't have Mm -hmm. to just, you know, be a place where you're like, just go over there and sit. It should be a place that is a peaceful place, a comfortable place that makes them feel you know, safe. Because again, right. now that, I, really I think that works for tantrums. I think that uh-huh. definitely works for, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think that definitely works for tantrums, you know, the communication and taking deep breaths. Um, but what about like aggressive behaviors when they, when it's now becoming unsafe or, I mean, in this case, the child is being physically aggressive in a store He's not really hurting anyone, but he is he is damaging the property of the store. But right. what about aggressive behaviors? So, um, so if, if the parent is taping it and the child is in action and you said, you know, you can hear the comments and they're kind of laughing, they're actually encouraging right. that behavior, and it's probably not the first time that has happened. So that would be kind of like a different conversation to the parent, like why do you find this amusing and why are you encouraging this behavior? Um, Mm -hmm. This this sounds like a family that's not really working with the child, and I I would Mm -hmm. think that if the child is doing that, he's probably been exposed to some of that um, or has seen it or has had it done to himself, and that's, you know, Mm -hmm. another conversation. But if they are not appalled by it and they're actually videoing it and it's finding it amusing, then they're part of the problem, I would say. Right. I mean, I thought it was strange that they waited so long because, you know, if a child is being physically aggressive towards anyone, anything, um, I would stop the behavior right away. And um, and show the child, like, the proper way to handle um, their behavior, whether he was angry or what, whatever the case was. Um, and it's uh-huh. confusing when a child is doing something they shouldn't be and the response is met with smiling and laughing. And, right. you know, then, the, then later on the response changes. Um, but for many of us, I think we underestimate our children, especially the young ones, all the time. Mm-hmm. And if our responses are not consistent, then the child slowly begins to not trust what we're saying, and they won't right. respect what, what we're telling them. So, mm-hmm. again, I think it's the, you know, we must be mindful of how we're handling certain situations. Um, yeah. So I, another, like, story that um, I think of is I notice parents sometimes doing this is think that it's cute when their child is showing attitude, you know, or being disrespectful by the tone of their voice or using certain language. Like I was in a restaurant um, one day and I saw this little girl 
talking to an older boy. It might, it may have been her older brother, and it looked like she was with her family, but she was just rolling her neck and pointing her finger in his face and basically telling him off. And the adults around them were just smiling and laughing. And obviously the boy um, didn't seem like he liked to be talked to that way, but I don't, he might've gotten used to it. Who knows? Uh But um, if that same child was to talk to someone other than the people in their family, you know, would that be okay? You know, most people would, would say, no, of course not. But, how would the child know if our responses are inconsistent? Right. Um, yeah, so. You know, we as parents, we don't have like that special book, you know, a special book that says, okay, this is parent, parents 101 and go to page five and this is how you talk to children and model for them. Um, right. So, because we should make that book, Terry. We, we should make that book. <laughs> <Right. laughs> because because that because this is the case. Unfortunately, we see all kinds of things, you know, mm-hmm. in public, and, and you know, you just want to go there and have like a little session with the parent and just remind them that you know, if you allow your child to do this or you do this in front of your child, these are going to be the results. And unfortunately, we don't have control. Over that, right. so in some schools, because school doesn't do that either, right? It just depends on what school you're in, or if you mm-hmm. are a homeschool parent, you are really mm-hmm. in tune with what your child needs. And I think a parent who consciously makes a decision to um, have a homeschool environment for their children. They are really thinking about the social emotional needs of their children. They're on it. They're doing research. I have no right. doubt that if there is a challenging behavior going on, like in a homeschool program, that it's more than likely something else that needs to that the child is working on. Maybe there's a trauma that happened. Or maybe a parent is not being, you know, consistent and that can be fixed. But if we're talking about um, children who are going to school, then it would really depend on that school program. If they're in tune with doing good modeling and um, really doing that modeling and giving parent education because I could speak specifically for independent school and in a Montessori environment, it's not just about, okay, your child is coming to school and we're teaching them. It really is a um, partnership. So whatever mm-hmm. is being taught in school is also being taught to the parent. There's a lot of parent education that's going on, and there's a lot of explaining on why we have this high risk of the child, and it doesn't just mean please and thank you. It means, you know, like respecting them where they are and why we um, are doing this kind of modeling and what are some of the things that they can do in the home. So it is, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a good balance between home and school. And if we have children that are coming in with challenging behaviors, it's only for a while because it really is an environment that respects the child. And then, of course, again, the parent education piece of it, so then you start seeing shifts and changes, 
and that's an expectation right. too. We expect that this child will eventually change because uh, we are making a real effort to also show the parents why that this is effective, right? So right. I think yeah. it, just goes back, it just goes back to the adults who need to be prepared, and we all know that children are learning all the time. They are never turning it off. Mm-hmm. When we adults may turn off the lights and, you know, we think that, okay, we're not teaching them. They're learning. <laughs> They're learning by learning us. They're mm-hmm. learning when we're not around. They're sponges, you know, like this is the time that learning takes place regardless if we are there modeling for them or not. So it's very important mm-hmm. that we are also aware of how we are relating to them and also people, the people that we right. relate to in front of them because they are really taking it all in. Right. Yeah, I talk a lot about, um, like, traditional schools and how um, a lot of traditional, you know, the traditional school system is not working. But I do have to say in Montessori environments, a lot of the teachers and educators, um, they, they really do try to understand the children. And I know every situation is different when it comes to behaviors and families. Um, and and for what you were saying, families need to be educated, and they need to understand their child's development, even when they are homeschooling. So in my mm-hmm. experience working with families and children, I've heard, you know, many stories of families saying, you know, my child doesn't listen to me, or how do I get my child to behave? And something I realize is every child is different. So when we think of discipline, um, we need to approach every child differently. Um, Mm -hmm. I've had children who I had to speak firmly with to support them, and then I had other children that needed just a little redirection. And with my own children, whom I know you you know, (laughs) I would just need to say, like, you know, I'm disappointed in something that they did, and they would just burst out in tears. Like, it, mm-hmm. it, I did not have to speak to them firmly at all. So I think we need to handle children differently, which means mm-hmm. the way that our parents handled us might be different from how we handle our own child because, you know, I'm, I'm not the same as my child. Right. Yeah. Also, um, I think, mm-hmm. also, I think that adults need to really, um, like you said, look at the children as individuals. I know most recently I had a conversation with a parent that, you know, was having some difficulties with their daughter, and mm-hmm. their daughter's personality is she is a leader already at four years old. She really knows what she wants to do, and she has big mm-hmm. opinions and has very um, has a lot of difficulty kind of, um, you know, following the rules. And right. she would be a great candidate for giving choices. So the mm. parents are really learning to really get what they want and and also give her what she needs. And 
um, without trying to break her spirit, because that's another thing, too. You can see those little leaders already, um, and you don't really want to break their spirit, but you want to kind of guide them that they will be accepted and their behavior will be accepted in society. They have to be able to function in a group. They have to be able to listen and follow directions, and how do you get them to do that? if they're so independent already and so opinionated. And you can see um, the five-year-old who will probably be owning their company in the next uh, 20 years by, you know, mm-hmm. how they go about doing things. So um, for a child like that, you would want to give them, you know, good choices. But right. it doesn't matter what choice they make, you'll be okay with it. So and there's a way to do that where they can be successful in their decision-making and choices in an appropriate way, mm-hmm. and you can still get them to do what you want them, what you need them to do, but they're just making a choice. And a lot of adults have, or some adults have, um, difficulties giving, like, a five-year-old the opportunity to make choices. And right, it's just choice. a way of right. thinking Because, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, this child is not going to run me. But are they really running you when they are learning um, very sophisticated skills that some 10-year-olds can't make a decision? Then when they're 10, you're not too happy with them. I mean, some adults can't make a decision. (laughs) (laughs) So we have to teach them. Right. Go ahead. If you have a five-year-old that innately is doing that, then that's great. Mm-hmm. You just you as an adult have the responsibility to guide them and manage them and help to manage it so that it is socially appropriate. And that's all I'm saying. When adults start to do that, then children, they do encourage misbehavior, not listening, right. you know, to okay. what tantrum. You have to really know the child in order to help them. Yeah, I I agree. I think a lot of people think, um, you know, giving their child choices, that's not necessary. But I think if we want them to come and eventually become independent thinkers and make Mm -hmm. their own choices when they're older, we have to start when they're younger. So, yep, that's definitely a good point. Um, and so I've heard people say, this is like another um, another topic, but I've heard people say when I was a kid, I would get slapped if I did something, right. you know, <laughs> yeah. um, or or I would get a whooping. <laughs> That's what I heard. I would get a whooping. And many mm-hmm. people have memories of getting spanked or beat when they were a kid. Personally, I didn't have, have that experience of getting beat. Um, I was I was on punishment, which was mm-hmm. never really consistent, but that was my experience. Mm-hmm. And I know, um, you know, this is controversial for some people, but I think it's good to talk about right. um, because we do know that research, from research, physical punishment can work momentarily to stop certain behaviors, but it doesn't work in a long term. And it can even make children more aggressive right. and antisocial and anxious. 
Um, And this idea that we want children to be afraid of us, I think, is an old idea (laughs) and and the wrong idea. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I believe we should be more focused on teaching our children self-control and Mm self-discipline without having to use physical punishment. Absolutely. Um, Well, I I laughed because I thought about uh, my childhood and, you know, being brought up in a a Caribbean home, it was very mixed. So um, my Mm -hmm. dad really talked, talked, me through everything, which <laughs> was pretty funny. <laughs> I'm laughing at it because I could just remember like wanting to get a beating because the talking <laughs> was worse than the beating for me. You know, I felt so badly if, you know, like I know I was did something wrong and then to hear I'm so disappointed because I didn't think that to me was mm. the worst thing because, you know, for me, I didn't want to disappoint. <laughs> So hearing that, right, right. Uh, to me, just like getting a beating, I would cry just like if I, you know, I had a, got a beating. But um, I do believe that, you know, talking to make children understand and modeling, if we are consistent, mm. I think we can not <laughs> do the corporal punishment thing. Because, yes. I mean, it's just like you want them to understand and learn that you need to be, you need to have this behavior that is, you know, socially, socially acceptable to fit into society, right. and this is what we're doing. Like, so if you're modeling right. that and you're having these conversations and you're consistent, then mm-hmm. all things should be okay. But you know, children are children, and it's developmental, and you have to allow them to go through their developmental milestones. So if you have a very mm-hmm. young child that doesn't have it yet, it takes the patience of the adult. For example, I right. see many two-year-olds, you know, like I'm witnessing this, I'm in public getting slapped, <laughs> you know, or for falling over. And I'm like, how do you know I'm two? I'm screaming, I'm grabbing, I'm throwing a tantrum. Right. So that's very, very appropriate for a Mm two-year-old. And every time I see it, I feel so badly because I'm saying, you know, this is, you're two, right? You're two. (laughs) (laughs) How do we know this? Because this is what two-year-olds do. And they are and right. also they're fighting for their independence. So they just barely started walking, mm-hmm. and there are mm-hmm. at that stage they are told no a lot because they're getting into things, mm-hmm. and the adults the adults <laughs> fail to understand that they are learning at lightning speed. And so a two year old has to touch, a two year old has to move, a two year old was right. just not walking. <laughs> so for them. It's like, what? My feet are moving me around and I'm doing all of this stuff. And, you know, the adults are trying to keep them safe, but they are trying to learn. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So, yeah. And learn. I think modeling, you like a lot of people don't think about modeling, like what you were saying, modeling. A lot of people don't think about that. But in order for us to teach peace, you know, we must be peaceful. In order for us to teach a child to, have self-control we must 
be in control of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, being consistent, I think, also is very important for young children. Mm-hmm. Having those routines, um, having consistent routines throughout the day, using consistent language. Um, right. But, yeah, like you said, I, I, I think it's interesting because when I see it, too, at the when I go out and I see parents dealing with their young children, um, again, they're not, I feel like they, they don't understand the development. And I think once a parent understands the development, they can kind of help support their, their behavior a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that um, acknowledging their feelings, too. Like, I know mm-hmm. for younger children, they like to, they act out because they might not have the language to use. And mm-hmm. they might feel misunderstood, similar to teenagers. You know, teenagers feel misunderstood all the time. Mm-hmm. Um and because they're going through puberty, puberty, their bodies are changing, their moods and emotions are changing. Um, mm-hmm. So I think observing our children is important, too, and that helps. Just watching how our children behave and, and feel before and after different experiences throughout the day, um, mm-hmm. we can better understand them once we do that. It's true. Okay. Um, I think also teaching a child how to wait is a good lesson on Mm self-control. You know, I think now so many people just give their child what they want instantly instead of teaching their their child how to wait. You know, I saw, um, I went out one day and I saw like a child was starting to cry and the mother uh-huh. just gave them the, the iPad, you know, <laughs> gave them the iPad. And and I think that's happening more and more, like where children uh-huh. just don't know how to wait. Well, um, I I do agree with that. And I also know that, if we're looking in the if we're looking at the context of a child being like once again I'm making that reference to the Montessori environment and the classroom um that's mm-hmm. why the materials um that kind of control of um the amount of time the child is working with that material based on the steps that they have to take that's all mm-hmm. worked in to them kind of like building up that tolerance and patience. And um, again, I think for the parent, for them just to understand some techniques and some things that they could even do in the home so that children can wait, right? Right, um, right. Then they, won't, they wouldn't see that happening. But I think if children don't have the opportunity to do that, then we see you know, tantrums and crying and the lack of patience. So, again, it's just if parents have that information and they're able to do that, then that's great. But if the child hasn't had the opportunity to exercise, like waiting, 
and, you know, like, and turn-taking, whether it be with an adult or another child in the house, then they're just not going to do that. Right. Right? Yeah. Turn-taking is a big one. Right. So if they haven't had... If they haven't had the opportunity to practice that, then they're not going to do it. So it's a learned behavior. So what um, what are some ways you think? What are some ways that homeschooling parents can help their children at home um, be in control and make good decisions? I know you said you mentioned giving them choices, which I think is important. Yeah, I mean, giving them, yeah, giving choices is a big one. Give, giving them choices and also finding out the child, what the child really loves and likes and making mm-hmm. that um, kind of be a part of their day. Um, I feel like when children really, you know, when you follow the child and you really get to know them and get to know what their interests and their likes are and you fill their environment with that, they're generally happy. I mean, if they're on schedules where they're eating on time and they're getting their naps on time and then their environment is filled with things that they love, then generally you Mm -hmm. really don't have a problem, (laughs) you know, unless there's something, you know, medically happening wrong, you know, like something happening with the child, I think generally if they're eating on time and, you know, they, they're they napping well, um, mm-hmm. they're in a peaceful home where the adults are, you know, pretty relaxed and peaceful, then all is well. <laughs> right. Um, so we have a caller... We have a caller. Do you mind um, answering a question from a caller? Sure. Or helping help. Okay. I think I might know this. Is. Hold on. Let me see. Okay, nine eight zero six one three. Can you hear me? Oh, I can hear you. Yes, Akeem. Okay. <laughs> hey, How are you, Akeem? Good. Good. I have Hi, a I got a hi, Terry. How are you? I'm fine. Good. All right. I want to rewind it back a little bit to the discipline a child is acting. Right? Uh, some of the behaviors I you guys are typical. You. I, I can hardly hear Is that better? Yeah, that's How's a that? better. Yeah. yeah. Is that a little better? Uh-huh, right. that's better. So how you have a child, you know, He's acting out, typical two-year-old. But I have witnessed personally children trying to hit their parents or even using vulgar words towards their parents, like the B word, like I saw a kid Uh just constantly calling his dad the B. He's a a B. Now, I heard both of y'all's stance on corporal punishment. Uh (laughs) Um, You know, Mm -hmm. me growing up, I got... I had I got spankings. That was the norm. Um, right. <laughs> so uh, I don't know about. I can't say personally. And I have three boys that I raised, and mm-hmm. I followed the methods of my dad. Oh, uh, right. Him. And none of my boys have displayed aggressive behavior at all. 
Mm-hmm. Say, okay. You know, when they're talking about studies, who are they studying? What type of thing? There's a lot mm-hmm. of factors that go in with these studies, and who are they studying and coming out with right. these mm-hmm. results, right? So what do you do with a child that's just out of hand? He's, I mean, he's physically aggressive towards his parents, even verbally abusive. Of course, he learned that from somewhere, uh, probably mm-hmm. from them, most likely. What do you do? How do you handle that as a parent? Okay. You know, because I'm sure someone's listening, like, my kid is just out of control. And I'll right. talk to him. So, I'll try to give him choices. What do you do? So if you have a child that's singing the Veggie Tale song, if you, do you know that cartoon, Veggie Tales? That's the Christian um, cartoon. That's what that's I heard of it. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you know Veggie Tales? Yeah. So I've like, heard of it. If you have a child that is cursing, understand that that two-year-old really doesn't know the magnitude of that word the adult does, right? That's one thing. We cannot get offended by a two-year-old that's cursing. And I'll tell you, I have experienced that. I had um, a friend that had a little boy that was like that. Um, is, well, he was taken out of the home, and he was with the with my friend. It was her sister's child because there were some adults mm-hmm. in the home that were showing aggressive behavior, cursing, and she kind of took him over. So it's like a surrogate mom kind of situation. But at the beginning, it mm-hmm. was very rough because there was a lot of hitting, and there was a lot of cursing, and there were a lot of behaviors, right, um, that you would not necessarily see with a child, much less a two-year-old. So, number one, that two-year-old should not receive, in my opinion, corporal punishment for cursing and kicking and having these behaviors because this was a learned behavior for this baby. I mean, he's only or she is only two. So there needs to be a lot of patience and understanding for this child. One thing we know about children, when they, the behavior that you don't want them to do, do not give it attention at all, like 100%. It will go away faster when you do not give it attention than when you give it attention. So corporal punishment, screaming at the child, calling attention to when they always do that thing is just going to prolong that behavior with the child. Now, I, I just uh, want to add to that. I want to add to that, Terry. I think if a child is being aggressive and if a child is hitting me, I am going to stop them. Like, I'm not going to right. allow them to keep hitting me. Right. <laughs> and I, I am go- and if, or if they're hitting anyone else, I am going to physically stop them. But like you said, I think there's other ways that we can help change the child's behavior without physical punishment. Well, the the stopping them is necessary because you don't want them to hurt anyone, but the hitting them back is the thing that I would discourage because that's not teaching them to stop the behavior. So, for example, Mm -hmm. let me just talk about in a school setting, Akeem, if if there Mm -hmm. were a two-year-old in a two-year-old class biting and hitting, a hitter and a biter in a two-year-old class, I always made sure that I had that child next to another child, but I'm right there. 
because I knew 100% he would try to hit or bite the child. I wanted to catch mm-hmm. it right then and there when it was happening. So in the moment right. when the child is trying to do it, then that's when I stop it right away. No. Mm-hmm. You know, no, I'm stopping it so that the child gets in the habit of that's the messaging he's getting. Every time I try, there's someone stopping me. Every time I try, there's someone stopping me. And two-year-olds don't want to be redirected or stopped. As I said before, they're fighting for their autonomy. They want to do the things that they want to do. So if you have the opportunity to stop that two-year-old from doing that behavior as much as you can in the moment, eventually you are training them not to do that behavior. But And you have to be calm when you're doing it. Like you have to go through the motion yeah. with them. If they're cursing... It's just like, no, and it's kind of like not making a big deal about it, and eventually the behavior will change. But if that child is in an environment that they're continuously hearing cursing and they're continuously getting these, hearing these negative um, messages and they're in a, a home that is very aggressive, that is what you're going to get. But it's not the two-year-old's fault because they really are not understanding that this is something terribly wrong. They're just repeating what they're what they what they've heard, and they're learning. So they're picking up every single thing that we do, that we say, even if it, that that um, wasn't modeled for them on purpose. They're still picking it up. It's in their environment. Mm-hmm. Whatever is in their environment. They're soaking up like a sponge. Right. I, I agree with that. <laughs> I personally never had that. I had three boys and I have a daughter. I've never experienced my child even wanting to hit me or be disrespectful in public or like that. I just never had that problem. Right. But I think mm-hmm. we're, you know, from two to, I mean, I mean there was an 11-year-old just and, and, calling his dad to be with over and over again. Right. Dad is just, and he was calm. The father was calm. Um, no. But it, it's just like, that, you know, and those extreme behaviors. Know, and, though I heard you say that, you know, like I gave my son a beating. You did not have excessive beating going on in your house. You have some Oh no, no. You know, I mean, we, parents it was, that it are wasn't a like, regular thing. It was it right. was at and times it, where oh, some dangerous situation took place mm-hmm. where like mm-hmm. it was it was extreme. It wasn't like, hey, I'm just going to you drop the milk. It's, you know, it wasn't that. Right. It was right. Actually, I could actually count on one hand, tell you the truth. It, it, it wasn't that many throughout their lives that we didn't deal with that too much. Because when I right. said something, they did it. I didn't have any problems with I think when you start off a pattern of behavior with a child, when you're talking mm-hmm. to them, they know when you're serious and when you're not. They know when right. you're being consistent and when you're not. I have a grandson who hasn't been around me much. He's around me now. And Mm-hmm. I could tell his pattern of behaviors is based off, you know, inconsistencies. So when I come right. along and he sees me, he challenge, he tries to challenge me. But <laughs> at, at some point he realizes I can't challenge this guy. 
there's there's no right. I can't do what I do with them with with me. You know, and I and I, I you know, I've seen you know, around. Yeah. I've seen you mm-hmm. I've seen you around your grandson, Akeem. Oh, I'm sorry, Terry. But I was just gonna say I've I've seen you around your grandson and I've seen that you're very firm with him. Um, but you, you also have a balance of firmness and love, and you're also consistent with him. And I think that that's what children need. Like, you know, there's ways that you can help change a child's behavior without having to give them a, a spanking or right. sit them in the corner somewhere. You know, that's not necessary. Yeah, when I look at my grandson, he reminds me of myself. He's very dominating. He, you know, he has his way of thinking, and he, and this is the way it is. You know, so I said, this is a little me running on. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so what I try with him, I understand him. So I get him to look me in the eye when we're talking. You know how children try to look away from you, and he's like, "Listen, mm-hmm. we're gonna talk. We're gonna look at each other in the eye. We're gonna get some communication through our eyes and verbally." And right there, when I do that, he it it, it freezes the behavior, you know. Mm-hmm. But when he looks at me and I'm looking at him, he can relate to what I'm saying and I can relate to what he's saying. And uh, he's, what, five, he's about to be six. And, then, you know, over the couple of months that he's been around, he has, that behavior has taped it off. And at first, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like a <laughs> battle of the wills, you know. <laughs> So, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for um, coming in. Do you have any other questions? No, no. I got Lauren just called me, so I got to call her back. Um, yeah, that was okay. it. Thanks, Terry. You're welcome, I see. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think, you know. I think children know who they can get away with, who they can get away with certain things. Um, And it's usually people who are not very consistent (laughs) because if they don't see that consistency, then they're just going to try. So we actually, I actually went over my time, Terry. (laughs) And um, yeah, I'm, I'm see that you joined me. I was going to get a little bit into positive discipline, but I think I'm going to wait and do that another time. But um, I think I'm going to go ahead and end the show. Um, Again, thank you for coming on, and hopefully you can do it again one day. Okay. You're welcome. Okay. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye, Terry. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, um, so I am going to go ahead and end the show on this evening. I hope someone got some good advice. Again, um, I'm happy that my friend Terry came on, and um, I'm going to go ahead and play another clip for you all, and I hope that you join me next week, same day and same time. Okay, have a blessed week.
In my working life, I am ignored. I'm ridiculed and tested to my limit on a daily basis. And yet, I love what I do. I'm a teacher in a pupil referral unit for young people who have been permanently excluded from mainstream schools. For 25 years, I've worked with all kinds of different young people, most of whom have challenging behaviour. And I'm here today to be a voice for them, because their real needs lying beneath the behaviour all too often go unseen, unheard, and unmet. Now, these children are easy to dislike. They challenge our authority as adults. They disobey us and disrespect us. They can make us feel out of control and sometimes scared, like we're failing, incompetent, and powerless. In short, they can make us feel like they feel, and it is unbearable. So in our schools, we prefer them to go away and be someone else's problem. But these are our most vulnerable and disadvantaged young people in our society. And they need our help and expertise the most. And yet we're failing them on a huge scale. Over the last three years in schools in England, we've seen a 40% increase in permanent exclusions. 40%. And in 2016, there were over 6,500 permanent exclusions. And the estimated cost of this over the lifetime of that one group is estimated to be over £2 billion. What we know about excluded children is that they're more likely to live in poverty, more likely to experience abuse and neglect at home. They're seven times as likely to have a learning difficulty special educational need, and over half of them are experiencing some form of mental health-related condition. Ultimately, excluded children go on to make up over 60% of our British prison population, and they're not just other people's children. They could be yours, or they could be mine. Like the 15-year-old girl who helped to nurse her mum until she went into a hospice who struggled to cope when her dad moved his girlfriend into the home. And then one day at school, she was walking down the corridor, and another pupil made a really cruel comment about her dying mum. And she lashed out and found herself permanently excluded. Not long after that, she went into care. And I later learned that by the time she was 18, she'd become involved in prostitution. I firmly believe that with the right support, her life could have taken a very different path. Just imagine if she'd been your child. What would you have hoped for her? And what would her mum have wanted? We human beings are wonderfully diverse, but our needs are fundamentally the same. And our need for human connection is the most important. Dr. Brené Brown says, connection is why we're here. It's what gives our lives meaning and purpose. And studies have shown that the happiest people have the most positive human connections. So when connections unravel, so too does our ability to cope with everyday life. And for children with challenging behaviour, they've often become disconnected. They've lost their faith in adults and any sense of security that they had. And if they could do well at school, they'd be doing it. 
but there are barriers standing in the way. There are reasons. And it's never, ever simply that the child doesn't want to. But knowing there are reasons doesn't help our mainstream teachers in their incredibly difficult jobs. Challenging behaviour in our classrooms creates anxiety, causes disruption to learning, and together with workload, it's one of the main reasons teachers give for their own mental health-related absence, and ultimately, why some teachers leave the profession altogether. And this is where the ideas and approaches and expertise that staff use in pupil referral units and other alternative provision could be so useful if it was extended and utilised in mainstream schools. What my colleagues and I know is that without a significant relationship, we can't achieve a single thing. These children won't like us and respect us and do as we say simply because we're adults and teachers. Adults have often let them down, so we have to prove ourselves worthy of their trust. We have to earn it. Now, fortunately for society as a whole, most children follow rules. But it's been shown time and again that children with challenging behaviour follow people first and rules second. Put simply, if they like us, they'll feel safe. And if they feel safe, they'll relax. And if they relax, they're more likely to comply and to learn. I've asked countless pupils, young people, what do you think makes a good teacher? And their responses are typically the same. They say things like, the ones who are strict, but that you can still have a laugh with. Or the ones that seem interested in getting to know you. Or ones that treat you like you're a human being. I asked one young man in my pupil referral unit this question recently, and he said, I never thought about that before, miss. Just give me a sec. I gave him a sec, and I waited. And eventually he said, right, Get on to this myth. I think that teachers, good teachers, are ones that you can have like a, oh, oh, you know, like a proper bond with. Do you know what I mean? I told him I knew exactly what he meant. So is it possible for mainstream teachers to build connections with challenging pupils? I believe this requires a shift in thinking towards a greater sense of collective responsibility for these children. Now, many of us know that our current educational environment does nothing to encourage this. Schools are primarily rewarded on academic results. They're actually incentivized to exclude pupils. Ofsted inspections make no separate judgment about outcomes for children with special needs and those with challenging behavior. And newly qualified teachers often report that they're unprepared for how to teach these children. But there are things that teachers can do in the meantime. The teacher and author, Paul Dix, says, it's the small stuff. It's the daily acts of care. It's the perpetual generosity of spirit and the interest you show in their daily lives that matters most. Small things that can have a huge impact and we shouldn't underestimate the ripple effect that one positive teacher-pupil relationship can have. There is nothing more beautiful to me than hearing one pupil that I've spent some time with say quietly to another pupil that's struggling to settle, Nabro, leave it out, 
This is sound. Collective responsibility is where it starts. But if we want pupils with challenging behaviour to learn how to behave, we have to teach them explicitly and not just expect them to get it. And this is where restorative approaches to behaviour can be so useful. Now, these are not hug-it-out alternatives at the opposite end of the bring-back-the-birch argument. Rather, they are tried and tested approaches designed to reinforce relationships. And they explicitly teach missing skills, like how to reflect on consequences, like how to develop empathy and a conscience. And they instill in pupils the expectation that reparation needs to happen. Detentions, time out, exclusions and isolation do none of this. And we've got plenty of evidence now that shows that our current systems of punishments and sanctions are ineffective with challenging pupils. The head teacher and author, Jarlath O'Brien, says of fixed-term exclusions that they are inaction, masquerading as action. They make us feel like we're doing something when we're doing nothing of the sort. It is respite. It is not improvement. So we need a new way forward if we're going to meet the needs of the most vulnerable and disadvantaged pupils in our society.